studying nighttime images of the Earth taken from satellites could go a long way toward building policymakers' understanding of disasters around the world and how to manage risks. That's according to the UN's latest global assessment report on disaster risk reduction. Our next guest is a contributing author to the report. Dr. Eleanor Stokes also helps lead the science team for a project called Black Marble. The joint effort by NASA and the University Space Research Association captures nighttime data around the globe every single night. Dr. Stokes is a senior scientist at USRA's Earth from Space Institute in Columbia, Maryland, and she joins us now. Dr. Stokes, um, thanks for being here. Let's if you could start us off with a little bit of an introduction into what the Global Assessment Report is and tries to do for policymakers around the world, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what Black Marble can do to help inform all those efforts. Sure. Um, the Global Assessment Report is a report on disaster risk reduction. Um, it comes out every two years, and it's uh, exploring how systemic risk in the world has changed um, over time and what the current state of risk is. It's put out by the UN and it's sort of similar to the IPCC for climate change, but this is focused more on uh, disaster risk. And unless I'm wrong, I think it actually deliberately excludes the effects of climate change, right? And tries to describe risk over and above what climate change might actually be doing in certain areas. Do I have that right? Well, they're sort of intermingled because it talks a lot about disasters and how disasters change because of climate change, their prevalence and their their um, intensity, but it's not just looking at how the physical, you know, disasters might change, but how the whole system uh, might be affected. So the socioeconomic systems that are affected by that or the infrastructures, how uh, we have changed the way we are exposed to those risks. So, yeah, it's not just about climate change, though. That is certainly one of the risks that it's considering. Got it. Okay. So so tell us a bit about Black Marble, the, the kinds of data you, you collect and, and how that might inform efforts that are kind of described in that risk, uh, risk reduction report. Sure. Um, Black Marble is a project that NASA has funded. It's a satellite data set um, that is imaging the world at night since 2012 on a daily basis. And um, it's really different from a lot of other satellite data sets because at night, um, you can imagine, you've probably seen these images that come up usually before Hollywood movies of the, of the world at night. The thing that really pops out is human settlements in, in that satellite data set. So what we're able to see is things like um, electricity infrastructure roads, um, how populations might be moving or migrating, things like conflicts, um, electricity reliability, and and also how disaster affects all of those things. So it's it's truly a human satellite. It's focused on us as opposed to on the natural systems that um, support us and the other species that um, live on the planet. You know, the reason Black Marble is uh, so useful to this report is it starts to incorporate these physical models of, of climate change and climate disasters with the social models of like, the impacts um, on humans and on cities. And so when you start to really do some data fusion between the satellite data we've had for years from the natural world with the human world, you really start to get a strong um, understanding of how risk is going to propagate to um, affect different parts of our economic and social system. And I think you're able to look at both long-term and short-term effects, right? I mean, things like long-term migration patterns and power outages. I think that the report specifically talks about how Black 
marble was used in the aftermath of the hurricanes in um, Puerto Rico. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, one of the really cool things about satellite data that's really well known is that we always shoot for a long term record. So black marble has now been collecting data since 2012. It will continue to collect data for um, at least another decade. And so that's like a long term record that we can rely on. But in addition, it's collecting data on a daily basis. So we get to see short-term changes like how disasters or uh, might affect power outages. We've looked at um, New Orleans after different hurricanes. We've looked at the Texas outage that happened with the winter hurricane um, cyclone Fanny. There's a lot of um, impacts that um, are hard to understand the distribution of or study with just um, information from the power sector um, or from um, producers of electricity because that data is often held within you know one district so um, if you have a utility provider they have a certain uh, boundary that they care about but the satellite data has no boundary globally across different utility providers uh, domains and and understand these outages at a very high resolution spatial resolution so neighborhood scale and now that we let's focus on the long term for a second here, now that we do have a decade's worth of data, can you give us some examples of the sorts of insights you've been able to generate over that longer period? Um, sure. Yeah, there's a whole world of scientists that use this data. So I'm not the only one that's uh, we're really the producers and sure. we try to get this data out into the hands of scientists. But um, people have looked at how light pollution, for example, um, and maybe more to the big data gaps that are out there, we have very little data about electricity reliability, like how often people have access to electricity. Um, so this is one of the first chances we're having to create a global data set on electricity reliability. Um, we're working with the World Resources Institute um, to do this, to create this global data set that will be used by utilities all across the globe who are trying to build out uh, solar and other sorts of um, energy infrastructure for populations that need energy. Yeah, and I would imagine that reliability data is especially helpful in, in some underdeveloped areas where maybe the local utility is not so great at keeping track of the data itself. Exactly. And actually, the util- most utilities don't have that data because they require smart meters. Mm. So you have like a two-way you know, um, feedback from the, the homes that lose the power to the utility um, central provider. So um, this is going to be helpful to them um, if they haven't been able to invest in that kind of high-tech technology. And thinking back on the history of, of Black Marble, were these sorts of uses what USRA and NASA had in mind when the project was first launched, or people just kind of constantly discovering new use cases for it? No, it's a great question, and it's the answer is absolutely not. This is uh, The reason that Black Marble exists is really to image clouds and for um, meteorological models. So weather drives that, um, that sensor in that satellite. Um, so um, these, this is kind of a side uh, benefit of having the sensor, but we've found um, since you know, having it in place, how useful it is for all of these other um, disciplines of science. And so now we're trying to create the case to really have even more high temporal nighttime images to understand these short-term things like um, even traffic or migration patterns, but things that happen on a sub-daily basis you can't see. Um, And right now, 
the sensor overpasses at around 1 a.m. So we're missing much of the human signal that, that you could potentially see at like say 9 p.m. So there's definitely ways to improve our science around some of these questions, but so far it hasn't been the major priority that drives um, the launches. Yeah, is there, now that all these uses have been discovered, is there planning underway to launch something that's actually purpose-built to gather um, to gather this imagery maybe at a higher resolution than we could have done in 2012? Yeah, you're speaking to my dream. I think, I wouldn't say plans, but I would say there's lots of discussions. And um, a lot of the land science community has put out reasons why we need this. Um, and I think uh, NASA is sort of weighing all their different priorities. And ESA, who's the European Space Agency, is also considering uh, launching a, a sort of nighttime sensor, as is DLR, which is the German Space Agency. So uh, right now, we're like the only one that has a publicly available nighttime sensor for use at this high resolution. Um, but certainly other countries and other regions will catch up. That's Dr. Eleanor Stokes, senior scientist at USRA's Earth from Space Institute, where she leads the Black Marble Science Team. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, 
it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do admit especially in the younger ages really can have a lifelong impact how would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time i would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that i care um I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. 
Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.